0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see the family again. not sure why this might some other Too close to my face. There we go. Turn your Bibles, if you would, please, today to the first book of Samuel, uh, chapter 2. We are still moving along in the book of Samuel. It's been exciting, uh, really, to uh, just... Look over the life of Hannah. I'm very grateful to the Lord that this story is in the Bible, and uh, you really can see how um, God works in the lives of His people. And these stories are all applicable to us today as the body of Christ, and it's just such a wonderful honor to glean from her life and to see how God used her so remarkably. Chapter 2. First book of Samuel. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Reading from the New King James Version. And it reads, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. Nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes, to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness." For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you, Lord, that we're able to come in to the the house of the Lord and, and to seek your face and to exalt your name. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would set your people on fire this morning. Lord, that you'd be pleased to rend the heavens, Lord, and and pour out your Spirit upon us. Open our hearts so we can receive from you this morning. Lord, take anything that would uh, distract us, any obstacle that would prevent us from hearing what you'd have to declare to us this morning out of the way. Bless your people, Lord. Help me, O God, such a feeble and weak person. Lord, I depend on your strength and your ability to preach your word. So Lord, we commit this service into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 The song of Hannah is a prophetic psalm. It is poetry and it is prophecy. It takes its place by the side of the songs of Miriam and Deborah and the Virgin Mary, as well as those of Moses and David and Hezekiah and other psalmists and prophets whose inspired ballads or hymns have been preserved in the Bible. The special feature which these songs have in common, says the commentator Albert Barnes, is that they branch out into magnificent descriptions of the kingdom and the glories of Christ and the triumphs of the church, of which those incidents were providentially designed to be the types. The perception of this is essential to the understanding of Hannah's song. The nature and character of this song describes the depth and understanding of Hannah's devotion and relationship with the Lord. Her familiarity with Moses and the Torah Are clearly evident as well, especially when she cries out in verse 2: she says, Nor is there any rock like our God. Which reflects Deuteronomy 32:4, when Moses himself said, He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all the ways, all of his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Another well-known commentator writes, It is not particularly stated here when Hannah composed or delivered this hymn. It appears from the connection to been at the very time in which she dedicated her son to God at the tabernacle. This song of Hannah shows the beginning and completion of Hannah's dedication. In chapter 124 says she brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. Then in chapter 2 verse 11, Elkanah went into his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli, the priest. You can see where she had brought the child at the beginning and at the end of this particular shouting unto God. In other words, we could say that Hannah's mission, or God's mission, was accomplished. God never fails. When God sets his people to do a work, he will complete the work. Whether you agree with that or not, God always has the final say. Then Hannah breaks out into song, which brings us to chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. At the beginning, we see Hannah's introduction. It says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. You see, there was a time in Hannah's Life and Hannah's prayers to God were as what Romans would say in 8:26, there were groanings which could not be uttered. As we've been reading over the life of Hannah, we have seen very clearly we've watched Hannah, we've been able to look at her life and the things that she has went through uh, the challenges, the adversity, the rejection, the trauma, And everything that she has went through, we see that there was points in Hannah's life where literally there was no words to articulate the pain that she was going through. In a book titled The Body Keeps Score, which um, I've read, it was a book that deals with trauma written by Bessel van der He, He writes in this book, he says, he writes on what he calls speechless horror. He says, basically there is a point in human suffering where a person's trauma reaches a point to where the ability to verbally communicate the pain becomes impossible. Trauma by nature drives us to the edge of comprehension, cutting us off from language based on common experience or imaginable past. And we see this, you know, in, 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 in today's world, it may be difficult to understand Hannah's pain in this life, but for her, her life was traumatized, and it was scarred by her past. This is why it's easy to understand her rapturous joy in her expression and praise to the Lord. In our world, sometimes we don't understand exactly what was going on in Hannah's life and what this meant in her day and what she had really suffered, not only at the hands of Peninnah, her adversary, but from the world around her, what it meant to her, how she must have felt before the Lord when this was a sign that they were bearing the promises of God, and yet she was barren. I mean, this situation is traumatic to such a level where we see her life displayed in agony, Agonized prayer and anguish reaching out in desperation to her Lord. And God is pleased to answer her prayer with her son Samuel. John Gill comments on the passage saying, She had prayed before, but that was mental. This was vocal. She had prayed and it was answered. This joy of Hannah's was not worldly, but spiritual. Not outward, but inward. Not hypocritical, but real and hearty. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1 says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over my enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. And Hannah prayed and said. This really, really shows, clearly shows that Hannah, is starts right off that Hannah prayed and not quite in the sense in which we generally understand prayers well. Her prayer was, Here asks for nothing. It is rather a song of thanksgiving for the past. A song which passes into expressions of sure confidence for the future. She had been an unhappy woman. Her life had been, she thought, a failure. Her dearest hopes had been baffled, vexed, tormented, utterly cast down. She had fled to the rock of Israel for help. And in the eternal pity of a divine friend of her people, she had found rest and then joy. And out of her individual experience, she breaks out into a song of praise. Many theologians agree that Hannah's battle was also a type and picture of a lesser to greater accomplishment, in the sense that this signified not only how the Lord delivers each and every one of us individually, but ultimately how the promise of deliverance would come to a nation. And that nation would none other be that nation of Israel and the kingdom of Christ. There's always a a picture here. There's always an illustration that ultimately throughout reading the word of God in the Old Testament points to Christ. Who is the ultimate fulfillment of every covenantal promise. Points to Christ. My heart rejoices, she says. The first verse of our four lines in this introduction to the divine song, she would give utterance to her holy joy. Had she not received the blessing at last, which all mothers in Israel so longed for. She says, my horn is exalted. And she does not mean this by, I am proud, but I am strong. Mighty now in the gift I have received from the Lord. Glorious in his consciousness, I have a God friend who hears me. The image horn here is taken from oxen and those animals whose strength lies in their horns it is a favorite hebrew symbol and one that had become familiar to them from the long experience dating far back in the patriarchal times as a shepherd people and we know that the ox also if we read the read the gospels the gospel of mark describes christ in picture form as the ox Most of us are likely familiar with the parallel which has been often noted between the four gospel accounts and the four living creatures in the opening vision of the prophet Ezekiel. The lion symbolized supreme strength and kingship, the man, highest intelligence, the ox, lowly service, the eagle, heavenliness, mystery, and divinity. In Matthew, we see the Messiah as king, the lion. In Mark, we see Jehovah's servant, the ox. In Luke, we see the son of man, the man. And in John, we see the Son of God as the eagle. So this horn representation is showing this ox servanthood. You know what an ox is an ox plows. Ox reminds us of laboring. If you've ever read the Gospel of Mark, it's so intense. At every turn, it is Christ moving forward to his accomplishment at the cross. It's full of healing, it's full of the power of God. It really shows, it really shows Christ. In, 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 in the work, in the image and illustration of an ox as he plows forward towards the cross. It needs all four aspects to give the full truth. As sovereign, he comes to reign and rule. As servant, he comes to serve and to suffer. As son of man, he comes to share and sympathize. As son of God, he comes to reveal and redeem. These are all powerful aspects of Hannah's prayer when she's talking about the horn of my salvation, the horn of victory. And this is the imagery that the Hebrews would have. They would understand this idea of an ox. I believe Hannah was an ox. I believe she was driven. I believe she plowed her way into the promises of God. And God used her in such a way that we can glean from today. And when we examine the substance of the song more carefully, we find that Hannah derives her joy and comfort and strength from seven essential things about God. And these are the points I want to quickly go over this morning. The first is God's holiness. Number two is God's unity. Number three is God's strength. Number four is God's knowledge. Number five is God's justice. Number six is God's gracious treatment of his saints. And number seven is God's glorious destiny of the kingdom of his anointed. We look at first is God's holiness. In the midst of this song, she this is this is one of her comforting realities of Hannah's song to God, her hymn to God. She talks about God's holiness in verse uh, in. Chapter 2, verse 2, she talks about the spotlessness of God as a source of comfort. She says, no one is holy like the Lord. No one is holy like the Lord. Why is this a comforting quality for the saints? Why is this comforting? Because there's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one like our God. There's no religion out there that can offer the satisfaction that only Christ gives us through the redemption of his people by the shedding of his blood redeeming His people. There's nothing else out there that's going to satisfy. We are addicted to everything as a culture. And addiction is a sign that we are looking for satisfactions in other areas other than Christ alone. There is no one holy like the Lord. Romans 3.10 says it well. There is none righteous. No, not one. Therefore, this is a very good place to start with our comfort in God that there's no one like him. Thank God that he is holy. Thank God that he's unchangeable. Thank God that he's the Lord Almighty. Thank God we can trust in God. We can trust in his word. He's unchanging God. There's no one like him. The whole idea of holiness is being completely unlike anything else. Almost to the point where it's beyond human definition. God is holy. And we have this holy God is our God. And then we see that God's unity, for there is none beside you. There's none beside you. It reminds me of the psalmist Asaph in his burning revelation of God's mercy. He cries out in Psalm 73 when he says, Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. Whom have I have in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For there is none besides you, she cried out. And this is what we need, to, we need to realize this morning, that there is none besides God. There is nothing in this world that's going to satisfy your life if you don't have Christ. It's endless misery. Because for moments in your life, you can find something that temporarily can resolve a pain or an issue, but it always just gets worse. Our lives unravel when we place our trust and faith in anything outside of Christ. Because there's none other than Christ that can satisfy. God's strength, the third point, God's strength gives comfort. She says, nor is there any rock like our God. Nor is there any rock like our God. Have you ever meditated on that reality before? That God being our rock, the immovable foundation of our faith and life and salvation. Never thought about just meditating upon that, thinking about that? Before you start your day or before you lie down to sleep, realizing that we have a firm foundation. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Talking about himself, not talking about Peter. Christ being the immovable rock, for he is God. Then it goes into verse 3. Therefore, talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. Really talks about not only the arrogance of Panina, but really the arrogance of the world. That actually believes in things that can offer us something better than Christ. That there is really something out there that's going to somehow satisfy you and give you the durability to be able to continue through this life without being destroyed. Christ made it very clear for those who build their houses upon the rock and those who build upon sand. Very clearly, we need to build our lives upon Christ. This is what she's talking about. This is what she has done. Panina had provoked her and abraded her with her barrenness to whom she was not able to make any reply. But now, but now, she vocally shouts out in a hymn and a song and a melody and a ballad unto her Lord. She's no longer keeping quiet. Now it's her time to shout. She remains silent long enough. And now it's time to give expression to her Lord and to magnify his name and to talk about how God avenged her and vindicated her. Would you look at the next point? His knowledge gives comfort. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, she says. God is the God of knowledge. He knows all things. He's created all things. There's nothing that's arbitrary or autonomous from God. There's no knowledge that isn't ultimately derived from God. Many think that they can say, you know, God doesn't exist and this and that, but it's so absurd and so silly. Even even false religions in and of themselves declare the God of Scripture because they all deal with sin. It's all man's attempt to build their way up to heaven, to build their way to God. Even atheism in and of itself is a religion. Because even in the denial of God takes on a worldview that's not theirs. What do you mean? Well, I'm saying you can't deny God without first acknowledging God. Because he's the presupposition to even give you that authority to be able to speak in a way that is objective. You can't say, I don't believe in God, without making an objective statement. So if you're you're living in a worldview that says, I don't believe in God, that very statement declares that you do. Because in your worldview, you have no absolutes, and that was an absolute statement. He's the God of all knowledge. He's the God of all wisdom. And the Bible says in Colossians 2.3, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. And what else? Knowledge. 1 Corinthians 24 says that that Christ is the power of God and what? The wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. Christ is the knowledge of God. And this is the God of Scripture. And this is when the Bible says that we are clothed in, as Colossians says, that we are made complete in Christ. Do you realize when you repent of your sin and you turn to Christ and you trust in him, The Bible says you are clothed in Christ. You know that, you know what that, you know what that uh, signifies and represents is that you are clothed in the perfect righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That before God, you stand wholly justified in the clothing of Christ. His perfect righteousness has been granted to you freely by faith in Christ, by the gift of God in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are. Christ being the wisdom of God. The full knowledge of God. He's the personification of all wisdom. He's the personification of all knowledge. He embodies all knowledge. And he's granted to us. Even the psalmist said, David said, I believe it's in Psalm 119, he says that your law has made me wiser than everybody else. Because in God's word is all knowledge. Nothing can confront or, or usurp or trump God's word. The Lord is the God of knowledge. What a beautiful expression from a lady who obviously knew Christ, knew the Lord. I mean, this is pouring out of her life in a psalm and in a hymn unto God. I mean, look at this beautiful. Obviously, it's by the Spirit of God. We know that all Scripture is breathed by the Word of God. But Hannah, in her ability to articulate these points, is so beautiful for us today. They're as practical today and applicable today as it was back then. And this is how we must, as we read in the beginning, we must look at this hymn as something that's applicable to our lives today. That this is the God that we serve. And number five also says, His justice gives comfort. His justice. Do you know you can be comforted in God's justice? Do you realize that? She says in verse 3, and by him actions are weighed. You know, God knows the secret things of our hearts. He knows all things. As a matter of fact, he drives the heart of men. The Bible says he raises up kings and he brings them down. He raises up others and brings them down. He's in control. He is sovereign. He's all-powerful, all-potent, omnipresent God. He's in control of all things. And she's clearly establishing this by saying, listen, let men say what they want. Let Penina say what she wants. Let the world say what she wants. But ultimately, at the end of the day, God knows the actions of men. He weighs the hearts of men. He dictates the hearts of men. She understood this, and this is why we need to understand this as the people of God as well. And realize at the end of the day, the Bible says that God created all things. But in Christ, everything is held together. Do you realize when you're talking to another human being that they're literally held together by Christ? Arguing, arguing at times against Christ? There's times where I've had d- d- debate with people, and I'm not trying to make myself out to be the hero of the story, but there's been times where I've had talked with people literally, they deny Christ. And I'm thinking in my mind, do you realize that you're literally held together? Every atom of your body is held together by Christ. Do you understand that? You're arguing against the very fabric of your humanity. How absurd. God weighs the actions of all men. Which brings us to our sixth point, He's, his gracious treatment of his saints. You know, in Romans chapter 12, 19, you know, the Bible does say, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. I mean, I know there's times even in our lives and there's times that we want to get revenge on people. Or you want to get somebody back for something that they have done, or you've been betrayed, or you've been hurt, you've been traumatized. Maybe it's by parents, maybe it's by friends, maybe it's by relatives. I don't know. Maybe you were bullied. You know, we don't talk a lot about that much in the church, and really, that I that I've heard, uh, it's, it's very talked about in 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 the, in, the, in the circles of the world. But these are very severe things, and. You know, today, bullying is, is, is something, obviously, we know can be something that can be used uh, as a platform for evil, but also a platform for good. I don't know if any of you guys have ever been bullied before, or pushed around, or been so antagonized as a young person to the point where it's left you crippled throughout the rest of your life. But we have to understand, at the end of the day, people will hurt you, people will harm you, people will betray you. But ultimately, at the end of the day, is God alone who will vindicate you in his own time. It may not be on this side of heaven, but ultimately, at the end of the day, there will be a judgment. There will be accountability for men's actions. I look around the world at times, and I see where I see little children and, 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 and things going on around the world that, that just makes me literally want to drop off into insanity. But the only thing that keeps me from going off the deep end is knowing at some point, God will bring everything into account. He will bring justice. Sometimes it doesn't look at it. Sometimes it doesn't look like it. You see all these things going on, and you going, God, how can you just allow these things to happen? But we don't understand everything. We don't have all understanding. We don't know everything. But there's going to come a time when everything will be brought into account. Everything. Every suffered wrong will be brought into account. So I would speak to you this morning, dear brothers and sisters, that I love very much. Reflect on this reality. If you've been hurt or harmed, betrayed, traumatized as a young child, and you feel like somehow you just kind of were thrown to the dogs, there's going to come a day and an hour all this will, be, will, will come into account. Judgment will come. Rest assured. His justice brings comfort and his gracious treatment of his saints. In verse 4 it says, The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. God just shows the the dichotomy here of this reality that those who are strong and haughty and prideful and self-righteous will ultimately, at the end of the day, they'll be broken and crushed and brought low. But those who have stumbled, those who have fallen, those that seem to always seem to get tangled up will be girded with strength. I love what Proverbs twenty four sixteen says. It says, "For the righteous man falls seven times, but rises again." It's very clearly here. It's the righteous man does fall, but he always rises. He always rises. In Psalm five twelve it says, "For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield." I mean, this, these are these these um, portions and these verses all show that you know God was not God is with Hannah, but the word of God says that He is with us as well. So much so, the scriptures tell us that he literally surrounds us with favor as with a shield. It doesn't always feel like it, does it? But this is a true reality. This is a true reality. Verse 5 goes on to say, Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who are strong now are no longer s- strong. They become slaves. And the hungry have ceased to hunger. They have been fed. She goes on to say, Even the barren has borne seven. And she who has many children has become feeble. Look how the tables have turned, Penina. Look how things have changed. You've slammed me and put me down and criticized me and rejected me. So traumatized me. But I kept silent and I took my agony to the Lord. And the Lord has vindicated me. It's interesting though, do you ever realize that Hannah only had 6 children? But the Bible seems to indicate here she says, "She who has borne 7 children, who was barren is now born 7 children." The idea here is this. But then just a little bit later in 1 Samuel 2:21, she seems to only have 6. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel, which would be number six, grew up in the presence of the Lord. Then we have to ask ourselves, is this a contradiction? How many children did Hannah have? Well, listen, the phrase seven children in the poem is almost certainly poetic and not intended to indicate that Hannah actually bore seven children. The number seven was a number of completion in the ancient Near East. It is readily seen elsewhere. In Ruth 4, chapter 15, she says, He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. In Jeremiah 15, 9, it says, She who bore, she who bore seven has grown feeble. She has fainted away. The point of the line in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, verse 5, is not that Hannah has had seven children, but that God had blessed the barren woman by giving her satisfaction in in an ideal number of children. While the woman who has many sons is not satisfied, this develops the major theme of the poem, the great reversal. Thus, Hannah seems to have had five children plus Samuel, which brings that to six. So the whole idea is seven is is, is a sign of perfection of the Lord. She was perfectly satisfied from God, while the other one turned around and was unsatisfied. And in verse 6, it says, The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. This is such an interesting verse because this is so indicative of, of the Christian life. Uh, Not only in the sense to when you were first born again, when you saw the holiness of God, you saw the exceeding fullness of your own sin. You saw the holiness of God, the character of God, and you saw yourself in the backdrop of that and saw yourself in reality as a transgressor, as a sinner, as a rebel, an enemy of God. And understood that the wrath of God abided upon you because of this reality of our sin against God. We're sinners by nature, and we're sinners by birth. This is a reality of the life that we lived before we came to Christ. I know for me, the first six years of my faith, I was brought into the mega church mania mindset of the gospel, which did absolutely nothing to my life. There was no change in my life. And then in year six, The law, I saw the law for the first time in my life and I realized the exceedingly sinfulness of my sin and the enormity of my sin and the enormity of my rebellion against God. But then I saw the enormity of His grace poured out upon me when I did not deserve it. And it was in this moment I truly believe I became born from above. My life changed. But it was only when I truly saw the character of God and truly saw myself in light of God's holiness that I saw my need for the cross of Christ. I was paddled so many lies at the beginning. Just be good, be good. Good behavior gospel is the worst gospel. I'm telling you by your good behavior you are saved or stay saved. But the reality, when you see the law of God... And it's a mirror that shows us that by nature we're liars, blasphemers, adulterers at heart in need of the grace of God. Changes your whole view. He has been forgiven much, loves much. In John 12, 24, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, It remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. One of the key realities of the kingdom of God is that life springs from death. Jesus in John 12, 24, speaking in response to, to learning of the request of a certain company of Greek seekers. The time for meeting people and talk has come to an end. Jesus is saying, that the hour has come for him to be glorified, to die like a kernel of wheat. What follows these verses is the instruction that Jesus, Jesus expects his disciples to live and to die in the same way. God made us and called us to bear fruit, but as long as we hold on to the word and our old ways, it is impossible. Ironically, by loving and holding on to our life in this world, seems to indicate at points that we lose it for the next, which is the greatest loss of all. Lay down your life at the feet of Jesus. Die with him in order to live in him. In this way, you will bear fruit, perhaps a hundredfold, as it says in Matthew 13. If you are not willing to die both figuratively and even physically for the sake of Christ, you will not see the kingdom of God. Jesus said, all those who will come after me must die. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Die, he's saying. And come and follow me. It's a true reality of scripture. That's a true reality of the Christian faith. God will share his glory with no flesh. Trust me. With no other. In Romans 6.3 Do you not know that as many of us have, that were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were baptized into what? His death. We were buried with him. Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also shall walk in the newness of life. Life sprung forth from death. She says in verse 7 the Lord makes poor and makes rich, he brings low and he lifts up. It's almost like he slays us with the law of God killing us, and then reviving us with the grace of Christ. And then in our Christian walk, you guys can all probably attest to this, that there's times in your life where there's a certain place of sanctification where the Lord is really working on you. And there comes another death. Because this is why Paul said, I die daily. There's always those places in life where we've got to die. Die to your rights. Die to your entitlements. Die to your way. It's the way of the cross. Jesus said, he will be 1st we'll be last. But we always want to be first, don't we? Jesus said, deny yourself, not help yourself. There's a big difference there to our lives. But we just want to take and take and take. You know, we'll take heaven too. We'll take the streets of gold. We'll take it all. But the reality is we must die to it all in order to truly have it all. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he lifts up. And you should remember the Lord, the Bible says in Deuteronomy, your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. Realize that wealth comes from the Lord. But he seems to indicate here that the Lord makes poor and he makes rich. Jesus said the poor you'll have with you always. You know, we see people this day who are poor. We should always be reaching out to them. But we shouldn't be so stifled at that reality that in life there's going to be people that are wealthy and there's going to be people who are poor. And neither one of them are damnable in light of Scripture because God ultimately is the one who is the first cause. This is why anything that you have, anything that you've obtained, anything that you create, any kind of wealth that you have is not because of you. It's because the skills that God has given you to create wealth ultimately belong to him. And this is why we need to be honoring, even in the area of finance, because the money doesn't belong to you. Just as time doesn't belong to you. You know, God says, you know, uh, work six days out of the week, but take one day off. A 10% of that week offered to the Lord. Same with the finances. God owns all time. He owns that, 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 that day off as well. He owns all of our money. Whether we keep it or we give it away, he still owns it. So at the end of the day, we have to understand that all things belong to the Lord. In verse 8, it says, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap. Obviously, Hannah would have definitely realized this. In Psalms 113.7, it says, He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifted the needy out of the dunghill. This whole idea of dunghill, we know what dung is. But really, the picture here is being low base and vile. He takes the vile person, the base person, the lowly person, and he raised, God raises them up for his own glory. In Lamentations 4-5, it shows the opposite. It says, they, they that did feed delicately are desolate in the streets. They that were brought up in scarlet embrace dunghills. There's an opposite to all things. But God has raised us up. God has raised us up. I know I came out of a dunghill. I can tell you that for sure. I came out of a hole. You know I mean? The whole idea of, of, you don't have to convince me of total depravity. Okay? I mean, I can just look at my past. And present. Okay? I don't need someone to convince me that total depravity is a... Uh, 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 a sound scripture or verse or doctrine in the Bible. It's pretty obvious. And if you go out into the world and you spend any time out in the world preaching the gospel, you'll see this doctrine in effect as well. People's response to you. You'll see, go to a college campus. You want to see total depravity displayed? Go to a college campus and preach the word of God. I had a friend of mine almost get killed in a college campus because he carried a sign that was declaring uh, that baby should live, a pro-life sign, and he got attacked. Total depravity is seen everywhere, plus in our own hearts. If you don't think you've come out of a dunghill, if you don't think you've came from a place of total ruin, a ruined state, then there's issues with that because there's nothing good in you and there never was. And you're much worse than you think you are. Trust me. Scripts are very clear on that. And this is why we need the great grace of God, which is offers to us freely in Christ. See, once you realize how rotten you are, you have a much greater appreciation for the grace of God. You see how much you have fallen? You have much great, much more gratitude in what God has accomplished for you at the cross. Which brings to the last point, God's glorious, seventh point, God's glorious destiny of the kingdom of his anointed. It says in verse 8, to, to set them among princesses and to make them inherit the throne of glory. And this is God's intentions all along. Even in the life of Hannah, in the life of his people from the very beginning of time until now. Is that God himself causes us by his power. He makes us to inherit the throne of glory. Something you want to remember every day of your life that God has brought you into the righteous inheritance of His Son. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the the despised by the world. Things counted as nothing at all, vile, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. In verse 8, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and He has set the world upon them. This is a clear indication of a recognition of the sovereignty of God. That just beyond my little minuscule life, God has created the whole cosmos, He's created all things, He's in control of all things. I think at Psalm 115 it says, The Lord can do whatever He pleases. And this is a very comforting thing. I mean, this was really, even during the times of the Reformation, I don't know if you're familiar with the covenanting times, the covenanters, they were brutally, brutally martyred. Uh, they were, they were, they were, they called, if you ever want to read, uh, look up the covenanters, and it's called the killing times, where they were killed uh, for their faith. But what they described, it says it was the awesome sense of the sovereignty of God that allowed them to persevere through such times of darkness and dread. Is their understanding that God is in control of all things and God has ordained everything that comes to pass. Gave them the ability and the sternness to be able to continue with the faith through some of the most immoral times. And in verse 9, he will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength no man shall prevail. God will guard your feet until it's time for you to go home. In in verse ten, it says the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. God's going to bring justice to your enemies. Trust me. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn once again of his anointed. And then verse eleven says that Elkanah went to the house of Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. What is a, a great finisher of this, after she gets done singing, after she gets done just pouring out her heart to the Lord, that it comes to the end and it says that Elkanah went to the house of Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli, the priest. It's a conclusion of the completion of God's story for Hannah. I think it's just beautiful. Obviously it goes on with the life of Samuel and his children and all these things that go on, but the reality of Hannah's biography is kind of a conclusion of this reality that she got to the finish line. She made it. When everything looked bleak and dark and what you're not going to get there, she got there. And I would say to you this morning, saints, that there's going to be times where literally it looks like you're not going to get there. Any what God's called you to do in certain areas of your life is going to look, man, trust me. If the Lord's called you to do it, he will get you through it. And he'll get you to that point. So what is the great lesson of this song? That for the answer to prayer, for deliverance from trial, for the fulfillment of hopes, for the glorious things yet spoken of, of the city of our God, our most cordial thanksgivings are due to God. Every Christian life presents numberless occasions that very specially call for such thanksgiving. But there is one thanksgiving that must take precedence of all. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a living hope, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last day. Let's pray.